the Bible has a singular goal. And that goal is to reunite us all in a loving relationship with God, now and in eternity. The goal is accomplished through trusting in the work of Jesus, who was God in human form, did about 2,000 years ago, by dying on the Roman cross. There's nothing more and nothing less. To accomplish this goal, we first have to realize that our relationship with God Our Creator has been completely broken through our own actions and inactions. Second, we must desire to have a relationship with Him. And third, we have to understand that no human is capable of repairing the relationship, even a little bit, through our own actions. Without understanding these truths, Jesus' death won't have real meaning to us. Having realized these truths, though, God invites us to trust in Jesus' death as the way and the only way to restore that relationship with Him. That trust, what we commonly call faith, begins the lifelong process of changing and developing our thoughts and our actions to become more and more like Jesus, to become more fully and truly human. It is a new birth for us. And like our first birth, we are called to go through a process of growth in our thoughts and actions. Except this time, it has become more like the image of what God has always intended for us. Not just physically, but spiritually. Because we are born physically the first time and born spiritually the second time. Sometimes this process is amazing and fun. Sometimes it's painful and fearful. And most of the time it kind of feels ho-hum and monotonous. It's a process of breaking down old thoughts in ways and replacing them with new thoughts in ways. It's a process of growing in self-awareness, of enduring correction, of becoming humble, and trusting in the goodness of God and His plans even when they don't make sense to us. The fancy church word for this is called sanctification. But the simple definition is following Jesus and trying to be more like Him. It's about learning how to stand firm and rejoice in our faith today. As Paul opens and closes our passage, let's look briefly at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then at the end of our passage, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. That's what Paul is trying to accomplish in Philippians chapter 3, the whole book of Philippians. But the big question that Paul is answering today in chapter 3 is how do we accomplish this? I think most of us are aware that we're supposed to have joy in our Christian life, that we are supposed to stand firm in our faith. But what gets a little murkier sometimes is how do we practically accomplish this? And that's what we're going to discuss today. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for your church here in Palmyra. Thank you for the people that it serves. Thank you for your good word. Thank you for Paul's message. 
um, that he wrote with the help of your spirit, Lord, so that we can know better how to have joy and stand firm in our faith. I pray that you would bless and protect this time. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So did you ever start a project and uh, shortly after you got into it, the excitement faded as you kind of understood what you got yourself into? That's a little bit like what happened to me as I started unpacking this passage today because I began to understand the implications of me being an elder here at FBC just a little bit more clearly, more fully. And it made me uneasy, honestly. And I also partially blamed David for helping me pick this passage. But why did it make me uneasy? Look at verse 17 with me. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I'm not so sure how much I like having eyes on me. In fact, one of the reasons I like Palmyra now is that there are few cameras and people watching me than if I had lived in some place like Waukesha or Milwaukee. Much of our culture is built around this notion of privacy. The don't tread on me and you be you are ingrained in everything that we do. And we've become a fiercely individualistic culture. But that's not what Paul was encouraging the Philippians to be culturally. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the Philippian Christians that their citizenship isn't Rome or Israel or even the church. They are citizens of heaven. And today, we who claim the title of Christian are not citizens of the United States or a political party. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost. I like it even less being up here encouraging you to keep your eyes on David, Tony, and myself. It occurs to me that this should have been a great midweek devotional. I'm aware that many of my weakness of many of my weaknesses, and it's humbling to think that someone might be watching me to see a reflection of how Jesus would deal with a situation. And you can ask my family who've seen me when I'm tired or mad or lazy or focused on the completely wrong thing. I'd rather just encourage you to use Jesus as your template. It would make it easier for me and you, wouldn't it? The problem with this, though, is that none of us have actually seen Jesus physically. How would Jesus handle life in the 21st century Midwestern United States? How would he answer questions about what pronouns we use in conversations? Or how our constitutional rights apply as Christians? Or how current political views should be biblically interpreted? In fact, God has created us to be followers. Ultimately, of course, followers of Jesus. But we do this through the example of those who have gone before us. Make no mistake, we are all following someone or something, or perhaps multiple someones or some things. Sometimes we do this on purpose. A hero, a leader, a coach, a celebrity, 
Sometimes this happens by accident or passively. It's just the crowd we hang out with or the situations we find ourselves in. But we can only truly have our eyes on someone who we are regularly in contact with. That is community in general and in our context here today, church. See, if we're following a celebrity, for example, you're only seeing the public life they want you to see. Community, though, invites us into a regular life that we find ourselves in all the time with all its associated ups and downs. Without this common experience, the process and examples of the message today don't really work to their full potential. Paul is encouraging the church, the Philippian church, to make who we follow a conscious decision. And he's provided criteria about the people, who those people should be. So let's take a look at the details and the example that Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi to follow. What kind of person should we be looking for? Paul gives us both a warning and then three patterns to look for. First is the warning. There are those out there who might seem good but are actually evil. The first pattern, though, having recognized this, is to look for those who live a life of joy, even in the midst of suffering, in the light of the gospel. The second pattern is to understand, to look for those who understand where they are currently in the light of the gospel. And the third pattern is to look for those who know where they are going in the light of the gospel. Let's look at these one by one. Paul first warns the church that there are people with evil intent out there that we need to be look out, look, looking out for. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What I found most interesting about this is that Paul had to say it at all. I would like to think that we all know that evil generally exists and that there are those who are evil specifically in the world. But we need this reminder because sometimes we forget and sometimes we don't actually recognize it. Paul is specifically referring to the Jews here in his letter. And apparently some in the church didn't see them as evil. They were attracted to the solutions that the Jews offered. Jesus was a Jew after all, wasn't he? And the Jews had answers on how to be even better humans by following the law of Moses. Now, I love checklists. I'm an engineer. Something needs to be done, and there's a perfect step-by-step guide on how to accomplish it. And when I'm done, I have the satisfaction knowing that I did it right. The Jews offered a great checklist on how to be reconciled to God. But checklists are not the way of life for Christians. The same thing is true for us today. Here in America, the issue isn't the Jews, though. It's the self-improvement crowd, the life hack tipsters, the how-to-improve-your-productivity people, and the peddlers of the prosperity gospel. It is the representatives of a political party or movement. Their messages seem good to us. They seem like they'll protect us or solve our problems or at least make life a little less bad. Many times, they also seem compatible with Christianity, something that is an and proposition. I can do this, 
and I can be a Christian. Here are a couple things to think about, though, in this perspective. One is that we are finite people. We are limited in our ability to remember things. We are limited in the time we have available to study a subject. When we invest our time in these people and these topics, we are also choosing not to invest our time in gospel-centered study or relationships. Two, when we use these resources, and especially when they appear to work, we start to become advocates for them and begin recommending these things to others instead of pointing them to the gospel, the absolute best help that they could ever have. To be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't advocate for ways of life that can be helpful, but we need to make sure that we are always keeping first things first, and the first thing should be the gospel. So what should we be looking for instead? The first thing Paul outlines is to keep an eye on those who have joy. Paul opens our passage with an encouragement to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, the entire letter of Philippians is littered and packed with encouragements to rejoice. I'll just briefly run through a few of these. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. In verse 18 of chapter 1, that in every way, whether the gospel is preached in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, this is important. Even, as a, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So the first pattern we should be looking for is those who rejoice in the Lord, even in the middle of suffering. We live, we live in a culture, maybe even a subculture, who likes to see things as getting worse. We hear people talk about the good old days. We see the decay in society and of governments, and it becomes easy to be cynical about life or even depressed about it. We get stuck in ruts and wonder if it will ever get better for us. Relationships become strained and become broken all the time. This is the reality that we live in. But there are those who understand the impact of the gospel and the workings of God and can see past these problems to a future where every tear is wiped away and every injustice is perfectly corrected. Understanding our situation, our position, in the light of what Jesus has done for us doesn't erase the situations we find ourselves in, but it does reduce the impact it has on us. When our strength and our reasoning and our methods fail, we understand that we are still permanent citizens of heaven, and we can trust in the strength of the Spirit working through us. No situation we face can erase this kind of understanding, and because of it, we can have joy. Ultimately, we know what will happen, 
we know that Jesus wins and there will be a new and perfect creation and that we will be part of it. It doesn't change our individual situations, but it absolutely does change our response and perspective to these situations. Have you ever been on the road and have a, a crazy or a super fast driver pass you? And uh, you think to yourself, where are the cops when you need them? <laughs> I promise you that everyone that is not covered by the blood of Jesus is going to get pulled over. And that is good news. Look for people who believe this in their life. To those who are honest about life in the here and now, but also can provide perspective and bring us back to the reason to have hope and joy in the middle of it. To those who understand both the immediate and long-term impacts of the gospel and how they should impact our emotions. Keep your eyes on those who have the joy of knowing that God wishes that everyone would become forgiven and restored as we are. It is a joy that surpasses all our normal understanding. You could call it supernatural joy. The second thing Paul is telling us is how he views himself in the light of the gospel. Look at verses 8 through 11 with me. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The second pattern is to look for those who know where they came from and are glad that their old life is over because now they identify as Christian. To those who, who know this new identity has nothing to do with what they've done, but has everything to do with what Jesus has done for them. Those who understand the impacts of the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and a desire to live a life that emulates it. I've encountered people who seem to live two lives, those with their feet in two places. They want to have the best of both worlds, or they're hedging their bets, or they're looking for a get-out-of-hell card to play. I've been with people who live their new lives with a kind of resignment and look back at the exciting old days in the past, but that isn't what Paul is encouraging as he relates this to himself. And I used to be like this a little bit, when, particularly when I was a young Christian. I would get a wry smile when I could tell people about my computer hacking skills. But as I've matured, I understand better where those skills would have gotten me, prison. And I've come to understand the negative impacts not only to myself, but to the people and institutions that I may have targeted. There's nothing to smile about or think fondly of in my past life. 
It's a path I regret ever having gone down, and I rejoice that that life is over. On the positive side, sometimes we look back on the good work we've done and have a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in it. But look at Paul before his conversion, verses 5 and 6. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That means he had good law-abiding parents. Of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was living the dream. He was a young, up-and-coming Pharisee, zealously stomping out these false religions and living perfectly as he saw it under the law of Moses. And the law, just to be clear, was and is good. But what does Paul say about all of this? Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We need to be on the lookout for people who remember the bad stuff from their old lives as truly bad and remember the so-called good stuff from their old lives as bad relative to the goodness of the good work that Jesus has done on the cross. And this realization of the goodness of what Jesus has done for us gives us hope that we too will be resurrected when we die. But this realization also brings us to our third pattern. Paul understands where he is on his journey. He not only understands where he came from, but where he needs to go. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to look for those who have a humble attitude and desire to grow to be more like Jesus. Those that are grateful for what Jesus has done already in their lives and who know that they haven't figured it out all yet. Those that are also eager to move forward in emulating Jesus, not being comfortable with where they are in their spiritual life. There are many reasons people don't move forward in their lives. Most of us have probably encountered people who are prideful and are proud of their accomplishments. It's usually pretty easy to detect. They don't grow because they don't believe they need to. They may give lip service to acknowledging they're not perfect because no one is, but their actions show otherwise. Paul addresses this. He's self-aware that he isn't perfect and that growth is needed. And remember, this is Paul we're talking about. But verse 12 says, not that I, he says, not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect. We need to keep our eyes on people who don't rest on their accomplishments or understanding. Those who know that what has been accomplished in their lives has been through the work of the Spirit and the gifts that God has given them. There are those who are comfortable with where they are. They are good enough. They're generally satisfied with where they're at. 
They've grown enough to get what they want and are just good now. Again, Paul shows us that this is not the case. He hasn't attained the good enough yet. He is driven to move forward in Jesus. The second half of verse 12 says, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We need to look for those who are driven to mature in Jesus. This drive is a slow and steady progress in making our patterns more like Jesus' patterns. And we live now today in a world that demands results as quickly as possible. But the Christian life is exemplified by the tree that is planted by streams of water. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3 says this, He, the believer, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Trees are kind of interesting. They're always growing, slowly and steadily. They endure the heat, the cold, and storms. Look for people like this. The reality is that most of the change that we recognize in ourselves as we mature happens on the scale of years and decades, not days and weeks. There are those also that feel that moving forward is too hard. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. The cost-benefit ratio just isn't there. Or perhaps they're fearful of what the future has. They prefer the devil they know to the one that they don't. And they have seen others get hurt by pushing too hard or lose what they've already had. And they're not sure if they can trust God with that, whatever that is for you. Paul addresses this fear too, perhaps in a way you might not expect. He freely acknowledges that a life lived according to the gospel will bring suffering. Look at verse 10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. But he also said in verse 11 that by any means possible, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus said in John's Gospel, in chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This flies in the face of the false prosperity gospel that is so often preached in our Western culture today. Spiritual growth is hard, and the world will like you less and less as you grow away from it, and especially if you try to interfere with it. Paul displays a determination to go through the valleys, dark times, and suffering because of the greatness of what Jesus has done for him. He has felt the disease of sin acutely and chronically and rejoices to be free from it and its effects. He knows that Jesus is the cure, and he wants everyone to have it as well. 
the world actively does not want this to happen to us or to those around us. We need to be looking for those who are honest about the challenges of daily life in Jesus and choose to move forward anyways. Those who see not just the issues, but the opportunities, and not only in others, but in themselves. So what does this all mean for us? Well, be aware that we are all followers. Be aware of who you are watching and looking to for answers on how to live our lives. Make it a conscious decision to live in community with these people. Look for those who live by the example of Jesus, who have joy that is supernatural, who understand the life they came from, who know where they are in Jesus now, and who know where they are going more into a life patterned after Jesus and are driven to move in that direction. Today, whether you are young or old, whether you're a parent or a child, not only do we need to be looking for these things, but we also need to think about becoming these things so that others will have an example to follow in the future. Each of you know people that I'll never meet. They need Christ-like examples in their lives. Someday, David, Tony, and I will be too old to be active in your lives, and there will need to be people behind us who are ready to stand up here and deliver a similar message. If you're a kid here today, you have friends or brothers or sisters who need the example of you living like Jesus. You see, this message isn't just for elders. It's for all of us. It's not only an encouragement to follow those who live faithfully in the light of the gospel, but also to become someone who lives faithfully in the light of the gospel and can humbly be an example of a life lived in Jesus. That's what verse 15 is encouraging us to do. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Do you believe you're in a position where you would feel comfortable with people watching you as a pattern of how to live a life in Jesus? If not, what needs to be addressed? Let us all as Christians grow toward maturity and use the example of the people who live lives filled, touched, and changed by the gospel of Jesus. God reveals the truth of everything in us in his word and by the examples of his faith-filled people. We who claim the title of Christian have our citizenship in heaven, first and last. It is not a dual citizenship. We need to be looking for other model citizens of heaven who have gone before us and can mentor us in how we ought to live in the light of what the gospel has done for us. This shouldn't be a surprising pattern for us. In the world, if we want to be good at something, we typically look for someone who is better than us and learn through emulating them. It's what we did as children growing up in our first birth. And it's what we need to be doing as children and adults growing up 
in our second birth. Paul had gone ahead of the rest of the Philippian believers and pointed to himself as a model of a life lived in the light of the gospel. What citizen of heaven do you want to be mentored by today? What community of heavenly citizens do you want to know better? And are you on a journey to become someone who can be emulated by the generation who is coming behind us in asking questions about how to apply the truths of the gospel to strange new situations and questions? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is difficult to ask to be watched. The message of the gospel is so simple and it is so deep at the same time. It has so many implications in every area of our lives, Lord. I thank you for the message that you've given us in Paul and of the pattern, patterns that you've given us to look for in others, Lord that we don't have to just look back to words written 2,000 years ago, thousands of years ago, to a life lived 2,000 years ago, but to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and emulate these things in their lives now, Lord, so that we can know how to apply the gospel in our lives better. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.